Warning, the most important lesson of economics is that when this line meets that line, it means that people will die or that it's too expensive to keep them alive. It's the same thing. Welcome to the show. And welcome back to Seriously Science, uh, Neighbor Wrongness. Seriously Neighbors. Dead Serious Incorrect Neighbors. It is a one-of-a-kind, two-headed monstrosity you're listening to today, a collaboration between the Seriously Wrong podcast and the Neighbor Science podcast. I'm Sean from the Seriously Wrong podcast. My name's Aaron, also Seriously Wrong. And I'm Ryan Salisbury from the Neighbor Science podcast. And today we're going to be talking about a subject of deep scientific importance, I would say, objective importance. It is called economics, and it is the study of money moving around. Yes, today, Ninja, who is also your teacher and the first person in your life who didn't fear you because of the powerful fox yokai sealed inside of you, is going to appear from behind a tree to give you a lesson on why economics is wrong. Like, seriously wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and just to try to bring our names into it more, you know, there's a science to being a neighbor. And <laughs> economics is the corruption of that science, I think, in many ways. It, it's the science of being Rand Paul's neighbor. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the science of eroding neighborliness in every community and replacing neighborliness instead with checkboxes and spreadsheets and lines that meet lines that mean horrible things. It really is the, the death of the neighbor. Economics. Economics tells you about the rational behavior of individuals, not the neighborly behavior of groups working together. Yeah, I mean, I think economics has made people not ever talk to their neighbors, you know, from all of the alienation that people go through from mainly like having to pay for doing anything. It costs money to go outside now. I've seen you before identify as an economic nihilist, which I sort of interpreted to mean any time that we see a claim being made in the name of economics, particularly a political claim, we can almost always assume the opposite is true. Yeah, pretty much just immediately questioning the claim that anyone who's talking about economics makes. And usually, uh, if you just say you're wrong, you're correct. <laughs> I've grown that to be, I I'm an epistemological nihilist now too, but that also encompasses economic nihilism. Do we want to go over the basics of economics? Yeah, starting at the basics makes sense. Yeah, let's build our way up from the solid ground that we can rely on. Okay, so, you know, this is really basic and simple to understand stuff. I think it'll make sense to everyone who hears it, and they'll probably want to read some econ textbooks after getting this little basic lesson. So, economics is primarily concerned with prices. That's like the basis of the economy. And so how do prices form this is a big question in economics. So prices are formed at the intersection of a downward sloping demand curve and an upward sloping supply curve. Everyone's seen that X graph. Yeah. So and these curves, this is something we can observe in nature with like instruments. Like you get through a clearing in a meadow and you take out your binoculars and you can see the two slopes. Put a little asterisk on that, just a very small one. And we'll get to that asterisk later. But yes, you are completely correct. So the more something costs, the lower the demand, and the higher the supply. The less something costs, the higher the demand, but the lower the supply. 
right? These things can move around, but they maintain that basic X shape. And they all rest at an equilibrium right at that intersection. And that just happens to be the optimal amount of whatever it is to produce for everyone who wants it, including poor people, really. I mean, so when you say optimal, you mean like that means everyone gets as much as they need or, you know, everyone's the happiest they could be or like that's optimal or or no, a different optimal? Uh, well, well, it actually means that no one can become better off without someone else becoming worse off. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Okay, so it, do it doesn't necessarily mean everyone's well off at all. No. <laughs> gotcha. Wait, I, I want to make sure people can follow this because we've just touched on something really important. Ryan's mentioned this thing called Pareto efficiency, which is when within an economy or within a system that's being measured by economics in particular, sort of the neoclassical school of supply and demand, dominant economics, the idea of Pareto efficiency is that a market is perfectly set up so that no one can gain anything without someone losing something else. So the idea is if <laughs> it seems reasonable enough, this idea, oh, things are allocated in such a way that the only way that you can help the homeless person is by harming Bill Gates. And so that way it's efficient, quote unquote efficient. But there's a little piece of this idea. And if you argue with the economists on the internet, as one has, they'll bring this up as if it's some sort of trump card. They'll be like, ah, well, it's Pareto efficient. And it's like, well, that doesn't seem like it's efficient. And they're like, it's a very specific type of efficiency that protects the wealth of the rich. And it's like, uh, and the way this is a neutral scientific concept in economics to you. And they're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is the best kind of efficiency. <laughs> it's just, it's a name for being inefficient, but protecting the rich. Well, that's what efficiency is, because they produce everything, and we produce nothing. We're just consumers. It's efficient at protecting the rich. Yes. Like, efficiency, you need a reference point. Like, efficiently doing what? And if it's efficiently protecting the wealth of those who have wealth, then absolutely. Yeah, I've actually grown to hate the word efficient. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I picked up that vibe from Professor Wolf. He was talking about all the different types of efficiency for a certain situation. He's like, well, there's economic efficiency. So you can think of like a car, gas mileage and stuff like that. There's fuel efficiency versus cost efficiency. Something might be efficient in one context, but not the other. And it tends to be used by sort of the capitalists, by the market people, that anytime capitalism is doing something they like, they call it efficient. And then they sort of figure out backwards what type of efficient it is. It's usually just spending as little money as possible to make as money as possible, which actually isn't efficient mm -hmm. if you study uh, the world. That's, that's also <laughs> the definition of productivity in economics. It's, you think it means being productive, but what it actually means is making the most money from the least amount of money. Right, right. Huh. So That's yeah, you, you, we, come as, <laughs> we come as Joe Blow, don't know too much about economics, and we see, oh, productivity is going up. And we're like, oh, that's perfect. There's more widgets getting to people who need the widgets. But instead, what it's actually referring to is like the financialization of the economy and this growing investor class that is just like private kings having money printed at their behest because of all this complex paperwork going on in the background. Yeah, it's actually a lot closer related to income inequality because, you know, the amount that they spend per unit of, you know, revenue is what they would spend on paying you to do a job. 
So the more and, productive the economy is, the more unequal it is generally. Yeah. Well, it's again, like, what are you producing? If you're producing inequality or you're producing more money from less money, that, that's a different thing than like producing useful things or producing things that enrich the lives of the public, of everyone. Well, as an economist, Aaron, I'm going to have to disagree with you just a little bit there because the economy really, when you think about it, produces output and output is, is always good. So if we're producing a lot of output, then that means that things are good. This is an assumption to economists within economics that there's just this general undifferentiated thing called output. And generally speaking, if you can measure that output is increasing, then you're like, oh, wow, look at this really successful GDP. Let's use that as a general measure of people's well-being the just output in general <laughs> whereas like you could have factories that are just manufacturing like child bone necklaces you know grinding up the kids to make child bone necklaces and selling them <laughs> back and forth to each other and then a third firm makes a firm of disposing of all the child bone necklaces for a high price after people have had their adrenochrome jollies with them um then that's actually increasing the GDP. Oh, and don't forget all the lawyers who can defend the people who are capturing the children and you know, all the steps in that as well. They're making a lot of money. Uh, Sean, I think you should take it easy on the human bone industry because it's actually a small business. There's only a few websites where you can buy human bones and uh, you know they're not rolling in cash. Yeah, I should punch up at the big guys. <laughs> Those are mom and pop shops. Mom and pop human bone shops. <laughs> well, you, you know what they say, the smaller a business is, the more inherently good it is. And if you find like a tiny, tiny little business that can fit and dance like Thumbelina on the head of a pin, it means you're supposed to just like give them a bunch of free money and like be embarrassed you're not as productive as them. And this stuff. is a little bit off topic, but it is a little bugbear of mine. In the US, small business is defined depending on the industry. So like a small business weapons contractor can have up to like, I think it's 500 or 1500 employees. That's <laughs> So if you have 1500 people designing bombs, that's a small business according to US law. <laughs> uh, that's absolutely wild. You know, because I would say a qualitative feature of small businesses to me as a your average voting political consumer who's going to be picking between Coke and Pepsi every four years. When I think of a small business, I think of it of having like the qualitative features of maybe providing sandwiches or... <laughs> yeah, it's like a lunch cart. You know, like reselling DVDs or something. Yeah. I just feel like it's impossible. Even if you only have five employees, if you're making human murdering weaponry, you shouldn't get any like small business tax breaks or whatever. And then also with that sort of stuff too, with the tax breaks, a lot of these companies, what they do who operate sort of behind the scenes that aren't public facing companies is they'll just break off into a bunch of associated smaller businesses who do trade with each other, give each other like preferential trade deals, effectively operating as one organization. But technically on paper, you know, let's just split up into groups of 500 or 1,000 bomb-making employees and then trade all the parts with each other. And then we can get all these benefits that are in the minds of the public intended to make sandwich carts easier to run for people who are like low income. Based on my limited knowledge of the world of government contracting and how that works, that is basically, yeah, you're correct there. <laughs> There's like a prime contractor and then they hire subcontractors that are quite often small businesses under the legal definition. And I'm sure that that's part of the rationale. My name is Ryan Salisbury, and I'm an economist that graduated from one of America's top economics universities. I use my knowledge to help failing small business owners make it in this competitive world. This is Ryan for you.
Today I'm going to Mom and Pop's Bomb Shop, a legally defined small business weapons contractor that has been in the same family for generations. Hello, I'm Ma. And I'm Pa. And this is our small weapons manufacturing and armory business, 499 employees. We've been producing homemade family heirloom bombs for generations for deployment on civilian or military targets. So what's going on with your business? Not making enough profit? When you come to our bomb shop, we like to offer something different. This is what our mom and pa generations ago said when they founded this company. You know, they said bomb differently. And it's just not working. Yeah, I really want to help you guys. And I'm going to try and put all my economics training into this. So my first piece of advice would be you shouldn't make your product any different. That's just a basic principle of economics. It should really be what we call substitutable, uh, which means that anyone's bomb is exactly the same as yours, and that way you can maximize profit. Oh, I, I, I guess hmm. we could try that. I mean, um, what, what do you have to lose, right? It's my grandmother's bomb recipe, but uh, okay, Ryan, we'll try it. Great. Okay, and uh, here's just a wild question for you. How do you guys like choose what price to set? your bomb at oh we look at cost or estimated cost and then uh, a a margin of profit gets added on top Hmm. that way we're always sure that we're going to get a return on investment that's proper and ensuring that we've set a profit margin and we're not spending too much time on too little profit it keeps it sort of standardized and i see how that could make sense to someone without years and years of economics training But I really need to tell you guys, the best way to maximize profits is actually to just follow the market around. There's this thing called supply and demand. I don't know if you've heard of that. But Mm. at the intersection of supply and demand, that's actually the optimal price. That's where you'll maximize your profits. So this markup thing, I don't know what that is. Oh, I've never heard of that. That sounds kind of crazy, to be honest. So if, let's say the price of a bomb today is four million dollars what you guys will want to do is set your price to like 3.99 million dollars and then customers who buy bombs you know just regular joes who buy bombs will see that and they'll be like i could maximize my utility with that slightly cheaper bomb that's exactly the same as the other ones you see where i'm going we've been doing bombs our way for a very long time and where has that gotten you you know okay we'll try it yeah we'll try it if we've been administering prices in a suboptimal way, I'm glad you've told us that. Yeah, you know, I'm here to help. One other thing about this, you're going to want to change your prices just constantly. You guys probably do it, what, like two, six times a year currently? Yeah, about that. Okay, you're actually going to want to do it infinitely many times if you can, if you have the time. Oh, hmm. And you'll also want to anticipate any future price changes. That's a really important thing. Without that, the model just falls apart completely. It does make a lot of sense. If you know what's in the future, you can plan for it today. So we're going to have to hire one person who can see the future exactly one person who can keep track of the market and do Mm -hmm. the necessary price changes. So we'll have to fire two people, I guess, probably Mm -hmm. one from the mailroom and there's someone in reception that I've been meaning. Uh, we can find the space. Yes, we'll take your advice. Yeah, we'll do it. All you have to do is scale back your production by two person units, since your production is, of course, a function of the number of employees that you have, right? That's, and, and what so. is a person unit but an idea on a spreadsheet? Exactly. 
they'll be fine. Them and their families will go out there and make rational choices for the betterment of themselves and those around them. And, and really, you selfishly firing two people so that you can hire people to save your own business is, is actually the altruistic choice. Oh. I like this young man. Well, that's very nice. Well, well, we'll put these into practice, and we will see you soon. Come by if you ever need to blow anything up. Oh, I will definitely call you if I need to blow anything up. Thank you so much. I later called Mom and Pop's business to see how they were doing, and it turns out profits are way up. Hello, Ryan. We're calling from vacation. We've got so much profits from following your orthodoxy. We're on vacation. Hello. I'm from Hawaii. Aloha. Oh, I'm, I'm old, but I've still got it. Aloha. She's not kidding. Economics works. So we're back to, you know, the equilibrium price thing, the optimal equilibrium price. So there's just a few assumptions that we need for the model of prices in economics to work. This is the X graph that you mentioned before, where the supply and demand curves meet. You have like a little X point in the middle that's called optimality. And that's where prices form like crystals and caves as a natural function of the natural universe. Yeah, the famous supply and demand that all of the goateed guys with sunglasses tell you when you say we should help poor people. So assumption number one, pretty reasonable. People are rational. What do you guys think of that? Well, I guess it depends how you define it, but... (laughs) (laughs) I think all people act rationally sometimes and not rationally other times. But I also think they probably have like a really specific, weird definition of what rational means. Like I'm detecting a trend, so... Yeah, people have the potentiality to be rational in certain contexts, especially when they reason together in groups. But as like an assumption that your average person like visiting a store shelf is going to be rational there. I think that's like a thoroughly and universally debunked concept by everyone, including economists. That's correct. Yeah, it is universally debunked, but that doesn't matter because we're in the world of economics where debunking something just means that it goes into graduate level textbooks that no one reads and everyone just assumes or pretends rather that uh, it never happened. And so rational in this case would mean people always maximize their utility according to price calculations. So if you get 10 units of enjoyment out of something and eight units of enjoyment out of something else, then you'll pick the 10 units of enjoyment always. We've all made that tough choice before yeah. <laughs> when we're thinking about our units of enjoyment at the store. And yeah, you got you to gotta <laughs> rationally go with whichever gave you the most units of enjoyment. <laughs> Pulling out my units of enjoyment phone app to punch in the numbers and get the most efficient bundle of goods. Isn't there also something in economics where like, Even if you happen to be mistaken about how much enjoyment you'll get out of something, like if you think you're choosing the 10, but you actually choose a six. And so like we might say, oh, so they didn't make a rational decision. But isn't there something in economics where that's still rational anyway? Like it's just based on what you know at the time. Yeah, I think you're talking about bounded rationality. The thing that they coined when people were like, hey, this is completely insane to believe that people act like this. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm talking about the updated version. Uh, Just to speak ill of the discipline broadly for a second, it seems to me this is another pattern within economics that they'll be like, we assume that all sunsets happen at 7 p.m. And then you're like, well, don't sunsets happen usually either before or after 7 (laughs) p.m. Like, exactly. 
And they're like, oh, yeah, that's called an irrational sunset. It's actually technically the majority of sunsets, but we need to assume it's at seven. Uh, and then they build like this whole complex. But then they sort of act like by asking that question, you're dumb for having not read all the books where they like <laughs> differentiate all these different things that they do or don't assume in different contexts and why that just like seems completely historically contingent and bizarre. Like anytime I've tried to really dig into this stuff, I've been like, oh, no, no, my intuition was right. They were full of shit. Yeah. Questioning something like this, that's for the advanced models. We're just trying to explain how you figure out how much sunlight you can get. So we just assume that all sunsets are at seven o'clock to make it simple. But isn't it sort of like if we built science from a periodic table that we knew to be incorrect <laughs> and we were like, well, that's not really the real periodic table, but it helps us sort of navigate that realm. And then we, in this other context, you know, we'll admit this. The, like The real periodic table is too chaotic. It can't be predicted exactly. So we'll just like <laughs> reduce it to five elements and they generally interact in these ways. And so, thanks to this equilibrium process, the economy produces a Pareto optimal outcome for everyone. Any questions? Uh, well, if the economy is so good at producing stuff, then why can't we just make enough for everyone and give it to them? Give everyone what they need? Uh, well, that's the problem of scarcity. You see, there are actually infinite human wants, but only limited means to do but it. How can we have infinite wants when we have limited time? I can't want more than I could do in a, my lifetime, right? <clears throat> well, uh, you haven't heard of Say's Law? Ooh. I haven't heard of Say's Law, no. <laughs> okay, well, if you haven't heard of Say's Law, then you definitely haven't heard of Walra's Law. That is true. I no, haven't yeah. heard of either of those laws. Do those laws explain why we don't give people what they need? Sure, if you understand the monete cudende ratio, then yes, they do explain all the answers to your questions. Uh, Mr. Economy Teacher, what is a monete... Sorry, monete... What's the ra which ratio is that? And how does it apply? The monete cudende ratio? Well, ceteris paribus, if you take the products that the economy produces, then mutatis mutandis, we can see that prima facie, there's just not enough for everyone. And that's why the economy can't give stuff away, which I'm surprised you guys haven't figured that out. That's in your textbook. Did you read the textbook? I did read it, but I just found it pretty confusing and yeah. it didn't seem to be saying what it said it said there were parts that made sense but then parts that didn't so you don't know about gorman aggregated smetz wooters bayesian dynamic stochastic general equilibrium then well kidlin prescott did and they won a nobel prize but i'm sure your nobel prize winning research is good too so wait they got the nobel prize because we can't give things away that's right what was your nobel prize in? we're students we don't have nobel prizes yeah we're your student at economics education so we wouldn't we're too early in the process well, then I'm surprised that you're questioning what I'm telling you. If I'm the teacher and, and you're the student, maybe you should just listen to me instead of asking so many questions. But we don't understand. Do you want us just to repeat the words? Because I feel like the underlying dynamics of economics like would Gorman, be... Like Gorman, aggregated, Smets, Wooters, Bayesian, dynamics. Like, does that, is that good? Is that what you want to hear? Kidland Prescott? Is being an economist just when I say mutatis mutandis and then I act like it's a very serious, full concept? If you could possibly understand what it means, then but, yes, but, that would get you very close to being an economist. You're our teacher and we're students. Yes, this is called a hierarchy. I am the teacher and you are the student, which means I am smarter than you, which means I know more than you. Yeah, we said you know more than us. Can you explain it? That's why we're asking. 
Well, according to GMU policy, it's bathroom time. So you guys better go right now. But I what? Don't, what? I, don't, we have, I don't have to go. Sorry, it's I'm the teacher and you're the student and it's policy. You can read the student handbook if you have any questions. I don't have to go to the bathroom. Nope. nope. It's time to what? go. Time to go now. Are, are you like the Koch brothers Nazi nanny trying to make us poop on command here? Or like, what is this? Uh, uh, this university has uh, no association with either of the Koch brothers or their nanny. I thought I was coming to economic school so I could learn about a type of scientific inquiry into the way that humans allocate resources, but instead they've just trained me to shit on command. Well, I guess you don't believe in science then. All right, so the second assumption, this has to do with rationality as well. It's people have a set of preferences that are fixed and completely ordered and based on the utility each good or service provides them. So, I mean, that's just definitely not true in any way. An ordered set of fixed preferences that just does not, even the most simple brain I know of doesn't do that. The way I spend money is that I constantly have impulses to buy things and depending on how much I actually needed and like how my executive function is doing and like my making the case. I'll just kind of like sometimes it sometimes it'll push me over and I'll be like, yes, and I'll buy it. And sometimes not. I don't rank order every potential purchase. Sometimes I'll just buy something for the fuck of it, you know? Oh yeah, it feels good, yeah. man. Give yourself a treat. A story about irrational consumers reminds me of, if you don't mind me sharing it, Aaron, you told me a story about the beginning of coronavirus that made me cry laughing, <laughs> which was when <laughs> when the toilet paper mania had overtaken us in the early stages of coronavirus. <laughs> Aaron had an interesting experience at Costco. Do you want to share yeah. it? I didn't need any paper products or anything and there's this huge lineup at Costco for the paper products. And I was like, oh, I'm glad I don't have to do that. So I go through Costco, I do all my shopping. And as I was getting near the checkouts, like on top of something else, someone had left a Costco sized pack of paper towels, like a whole shitload of paper towels. And then part of my like fear, panic, COVID just starting brain was just like, oh, well, what if there's no toilet paper again for a long time what if you don't have any paper products for like if i buy this at least i'll have something for i'll, I'll just have it so <laughs> i bought a whole big thing of paper towels and i've used two of them since i still have i still, I still have a lot <laughs> and it was the most amazing part of this to me is that aaron had actually made a set of ordered preferences going into the store like if you had asked his rational you know, the, the rational Aaron ordered preferences of economics, whether or not there was any need to buy this. He could have told you a minute before he saw it. No. But something about seeing it mixed with all the complexity of the real world, he's like, well, then I have it. And then he spent, he spent 25 bucks or whatever. It's amazing. I didn't get the opportunity to do that, but I think I probably would too. Like a monkey trying to hoard berries, you know? Yeah. I was just staring at my bidet and laughing like a maniac about not having to buy toilet paper. Well, that's some extremely advanced shit. I still use it to dab off to dry afterwards. Oh, little little king here. <laughs> Maybe TMI. Number three, buyers engage with the market voluntarily to provide themselves with utility. As we all know, you can choose whether or not to eat by buying groceries. Mm -hmm. And you have voluntary options to leave the marketplace if you, if you really want to eat. Right. I think what they're actually saying is that when you're starving, nobody has to force you to want money to buy things. Like, 
Nobody's putting a gun to your head and making you go to McDonald's. That's the way I always hear it put. Mm -hmm. Coercion by deprivation isn't real coercion. Please shut up. That's what they're saying. Right. (laughs) So number four, sellers engage with the market to profit, providing goods or services in order to swap them for different goods and services. You know, companies in the market, their real goal is to buy stuff themselves. And they're just really good at making things like one thing in particular. So they'll sell that in order to get other things. And this goes back to like the barter myth of, you know, the economy evolved out of your neighbors swapping you three eggs for some beef that you grew. Something that comes to mind to me is that something that's missing is that it seems to me that some people in the marketplace are engaging with the market to profit for the purposes of amassing massive amounts of power behind the wildest dreams of most historical tyrants and kings. But I don't know. I think Jeff Bezos really just wants $180 billion worth of things. <laughs> and that's why his wealth is always growing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Number five, buyers always buy less of something as the price increases. So if the price of food goes up, you'll just eat less food. Oh, I've put on a little weight during Corona. That might be slimming if they increase the prices. <laughs> I got to remember that next time I go to the store. If, if things get more expensive, <laughs> I should just eat less. Oh, damn. This ketchup's marked up 50 cents. <laughs> Oh, I guess I can only get eight tenths of ketchup this time. (laughs) There's this really good comic that I remember seeing. I think it might have been PhD comics or something, but it was like some guy from the cable company was like, the price of cable has gone down. Why aren't people watching more TV? (laughs) Actually, the thing that's really subtly funny about that is that's a real question being asked by adult people with fully working brains. Yep. (laughs) Okay. And uh, number six is related to that. Sellers always sell more of something as the price increases. That one's probably the most reasonable assumption on there. If the price goes up, businesses will want to sell more of something. Number seven, buyers and sellers have complete knowledge of all goods and services and their prices, both now and in the future. Well, that's just true. Everyone who participates in a marketplace is omniscient. I'm always reading, you know, the ads for Walmart and Target and Kmart and Best Buy and what are some other stores? I'm always looking into my ability to glimpse into every potential future, (laughs) just kind of doing some calculations to see which one seems most likely as they shift and change and collapse into one another. That's kind of where I usually focus when I'm at the store deciding whether to buy something. And you're punching it into your machine to find out how many units of utility it'll provide you, right? This is why socialism doesn't work. It's because a socialist looks at a Walmart catalog and they say, oh, a jumper is this much money and so on. But in the marketplace, buyers and sellers, when they look at the catalog, they see not just the prices at Walmart, but they see the whole production process every step of the way. They see all potential other catalogs that are out there and all unmarked prices and all places. And they say, oh, this place is X far away from me. This place is Y far away from me. This one costs this much more. This one costs this much less, but it's slightly further away. How much gas is it going to take to get there and time? How much is my time worth as a laborer? And all this stuff is going on automatically in the mind of buyers and sellers automatically as if they're wearing some sort of alternate reality goggles that turn them into consuming gods. So I have no issue with this one. This one's perfectly true. You know, they say you only use some percentage of your brain or something. I think that's bullshit to begin with, but maybe the rest of it is all being used to do these like subconscious economics calculations. <laughs> to be perfectly rational with infinite access to information. that makes These wealthy, privileged scholars like Karl Marx are like, oh, I think a code is worth uh, 20 yards of linen. And, uh, you know, real working class consumers like, actually, it's worth 16.875. Nice try, though, Carl. Yeah, you got to shop around, Carl. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> All right. So number eight is everyone is self-employed. I think we can just move on right there. Pretty reasonable. (laughs) 
<laughs> in a way. And number nine you know. is uh, no one produces anything for their own use. So we all work for ourselves, but not for ourselves, really for other people. Yeah, and an extension of this assumption, too, is sort of like not only does no one produce anything for their own use, but no one in groups ever produces things that never become commodities. Right. And this is why farmers don't eat their own food. All egg farmers hate eggs. Yeah, you can't get high on your own supply. You know, this is like first day stuff. When you become a farmer, they're like, hey, you start eating these eggs. You're going to get out of control. Are you here to make money or are you here to eat eggs? You got to make your choice now. <laughs> Some guys just flip eggs so they can get enough eggs to keep their egg habit going. And, it, you know, that's not a grind. What were the names of those evil farmers from the Fantastic Mr. Fox? The most unrealistic part of that story, obviously, was that the farmers are like eating their own produce. The talking animal is fine, but... You know, bogus buns and bean or whatever, eating their own food. That would never happen. It's not really morally wrong. It's impossible. So number 10, uh, we already talked about is Pareto optimality, when no one can become better off without someone else becoming worse off. No matter who they are and no matter what the context is. Keep that in mind. Exactly. (laughs) So number 11 is uh, we can take economics as it works on the level of the individual and just scale it up to know how the economy works. So if one person works the way that we've just been talking about, that's how the entire economy works as well. It's too complicated to think about everybody as different. So if we think about them all as the same, we can make equations that are sensible. I mean, and this assumption too is so connected to sort of like the ideological, socio-political context and the development of economics, where society is assumed to be made up of these like purely individual individuals, like individuals who aren't defined by the communities they are part of, who make decisions by themselves, not in groups, etc. And like when you put something as foolish as that as a foundational assumption, and you don't try to analyze groups as having behaviors that are like specific to groups, including like the sharing of information and so on. Like, I understand that economists would be like, oh, it's too complicated to model everything. And it's like, well, what you guys came up with was pretty fucking complicated, too, and it doesn't work. It's <laughs> And of course, underlying that is the assumption that you have to model everything. No one ever said you had to model everything. You can just like do what every other type of scientist does and just observe reality (laughs) and then try to explain it. Wait, wait. So you're telling me at the development of capitalism, they weren't modeling all this stuff ahead of time to make sure it would work? I'm not sure, actually. I'll, I'll have to put that in the show notes, whether or not that's true. Number 12, again, very reasonable assumption. Businesses don't require investment. So anyone can just start their own business with no capital whenever they want, with no cost at all. So I'm going to defer to your relative expertise on this, Ryan. Why the hell do they say that? It makes no sense. It's like some of this other stuff, I'm like, oh, it's serving some sort of political purpose or something. But this just seems like they look you square in the eye and they're like, the sky is red. (laughs) Well, the main reason is because if businesses required investment, then only rich people would be able to start businesses. And so that would bring inequality into models of economics and everything would fall apart. Basically, all of these assumptions are to make sure that the whole model doesn't fall into pieces. The key thing you're forgetting, Ryan, here is that you can, as a poor person, any poor person, you can ask rich people to give you money to start a business, to invest in, like you can just beg them to help you and maybe they will. So I think that's the, the reason it's true that anyone can start a business. They can just ask a rich. Plus, you know, my friend started a a landscaping company with nothing but a shovel. So if he can do it, then you can too. So quit complaining. If it works for the individual, it scales up for the entire economy. True. (laughs) That shovel is the means of production. And under communism, everyone would have a vote in it. Think about that. You want everyone to vote on your shovel? (laughs) How are you going to start a landscaping company and earn an honest living for yourself as a small businessman like the good people at Raytheon? So number 13 is kind of related. There is no debt. 
in the economy, which means, therefore, there's no stocks or bonds because those are also debt. Uh, there's no bank accounts. <laughs> and where does this come from? Like wanting to assume that all sellers are starting at the same neutral point or something like that? If there was debt involved, the model would fall apart. It wouldn't work. People would become like a permanent underclass. Then it wouldn't have the magical equilibrium properties that they need to prove that capitalism is actually the most perfect system ever made. So I don't read economic things or like listen to, but like they have to acknowledge debt sometimes, right? Is it just that it's not acknowledged in some contexts, but is in others? Yeah. I mean, basically like if they acknowledge any of these things, they do it in a way that preserves the model that they developed with all these assumptions, uh, or rather the model was developed first and then people started pointing out things that were wrong with it. And then they were like, oh, well, actually, in our model, there is no debt. So that criticism doesn't apply. It always seems to me on these economic discussions, there's these weird circular games of like, oh, we assume this. And then it's like, you shouldn't assume that. And like, we don't assume that. And then <laughs> where it's like this nested weird thing in the 101, the thing that they put up front is just like this weird cascade of politicized lies with implications that fall apart if they're picked at at all. And then they say, oh, well, it's actually... All those assumptions are dealt with if you keep on studying for a long time at a business school. Well, business school is like the realistic version of economics because you learn how the economy actually works. And economics is like the ideological version. It's like the political science of economics where you just learn the goofy, like religious justification of the economy and not like how to run a business. Right, right. So the last two are pretty quick. 14, we kind of already talked about, which is uh, there is only one seller and one buyer or infinitely many of each. So like the equilibrium process only really works if you assume either one of those. If there's one seller and one buyer, then the math is really simple and the equilibrium works. And also if there's infinitely many of each, then equilibrium becomes like a natural outcome of that assumption. And then the last one is there's only one good being produced, which is output. I think there was Friedman that said that actually. Yeah. <laughs> Milton Friedman. So I, I have a Steve Keen passage that I put in the show notes I'm not going to read it because we want to save time, but I would advise everyone to go read it. This is where I got a lot of this stuff. And I will read what he ends on, which is, you think I'm joking? I wish I was. It does sound like a joke. If it wasn't true, it wouldn't be a terrible joke, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it could be like a really thoughtful and funny parody of a system that works better. As we've increasingly found out in the 21st century, it's impossible to parody anything because reality is always more ridiculous than anything you can think of yourself. Yeah, it's like when we were trying to come up with some sort of joke about DRM and we came up with people dying of coronavirus because the ventilators DRM wouldn't let them save lives. And then we looked it up and it turned out it was just literally true. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's like, what was, I can't remember the stats. There's some report of just a ridiculous amount of doctors saying, like, there are ventilators that they have on site they can't use because of the shit. Like, they have to pay a subscription or something? Is that They need to get a specialist from the company to come into the coronavirus area to install the parts they already have because you don't have a right to repair your own ventilators. The specialists have an unlock code, a special code that only they know. I've got a question for you. Sure. This X, this perfect price thing. Perfect, yes. I accept that it perfectly explains everything, but I've just got a small question. Okay. How come if you put a fucking brand on a purse, you can make a purse go from costing $15 to $1,500 just through the little ideological <laughs> branding of how do two identical purses with different brands on them end up at different places on this beautiful curve? 
Uh, well, that doesn't really exist. Uh, you know, no, um, it's actually, that is called a Veblen good. The oh, kind that you're oh, yeah, of. from Economics 103, 103, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's one of those things you learn in business school that you would never learn in economics, which is in economics, all products are supposed to be perfectly substitutable. So a purse is always a purse. It's never like a Louis Vuitton bag. People shop around for the cheapest. If they're identical, right. as long as it's cheap, I don't care about Louis Vuitton. That's the rational consumer right. talking. That is the rational thing to do, yes. So if you're in business school, you learn the exact opposite, which is you never want anything to be substitutable. You want your brand to stand out above all the rest because that's how you make the most money. And when they're like status symbols, that's called a Veblen good. You're just underestimating the value of status. So you could say like a purse gives you two units of utility. You know, you put things in it, you carry it around. That's what a purse does. Having a Louis Vuitton logo on something, that makes people think that you're better than them in some way that that has like which means a hundred thousand useful units <laughs> i mean whether you are or not doesn't matter because they're gonna think it baby so that's utility that's way more than just carrying things around that's real that's that's useful today's episode of neighbor wrong is brought to you by louis veblen when the high price of something makes you more likely to buy it that's louis veblen Oh, wow, that is such a beautiful logo on that purse you have. What a familiar-looking pattern. Is that Louis Veblen? It is, and that's how you know that I paid a lot for it. You paid a lot for that. That makes me see you differently socially. Really cool. You know, a friend of mine has a purse just like that without the logo, and I can tell they didn't pay much for it. What's the point? Exactly. <laughs> Not only pointless, but unethical. That is Louis Veblen's intellectual property to make a purse that looks like that. Yeah, we call that a knockoff, and uh, that just means you're basically stealing. Stealing from people who least deserve it. They call it a knockoff because knock it off. It's not good for business. Louis Veblen, today's sponsor of the Neighbor Wrong Podcast and a small mom-and-pop business, according to the law of these great United States. And now back to our show. That's how prices are actually set, right? Like, no irony. Where do prices come from, Ryan? There were two economists named Gardner Means and Adolf Burl who published a study in 1932 called The Modern Corporation and Private Property. In the study, they surveyed corporations on a bunch of different things. It was mainly centered on corporate law and governance. But one of the things they surveyed was price formation. So they wanted to figure out whether corporations actually formed prices the way that economists were saying they did. And they found that, yes, 25 to 50 percent of companies do form prices approximately sort of the way that uh, economists say they do, depending on the country and industry. Oh, that's a check mark. <laughs> Got it right. <laughs> yeah. Between one and two out of four are setting their prices based on the intersection between what they perceive as supply and demand. Right. That's called market pricing. That's what economists call it now. The majority of prices, though, that is being set on what's called administered pricing. So like the main one is markup pricing. It's a subset of administered pricing. And that basically means that the accountants amortize the unit cost of a product because it's impossible to know exactly the unit cost of a good, but they like figure out their estimate of it. And then they take the amount of profit they want to make, like 20% or whatever, and then they just add that to the cost of each good. And that's the price of the good. Uh, yeah, my uncle who used to run a store selling 
chairs. He told me if I ever started a business, make the markup. I think he said like 800%. And then once a year, have a absolute lowest prices ever sale where you just bring down the markup to 300%. And he said that if you do that, then you're going to make a lot of good money all year. But I haven't followed it yet. I don't have the touch for chair selling that that man once did. (laughs) Yeah, I remember uh, working at Best Buy when I was 16 and the discount was really good. It was whatever Best Buy pays, you pay 5% above that. And so for some things like DVDs, you only got like a few cents off. But for other things like USB cables, the price would go from like 30 bucks to like $2. And I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Why is it that expensive? Because it feels good to make money, man. I think now since there's so much more competition for selling cables, you can get them that cheap now. Not quite $2, but pretty close to that. But yeah, I think that started me down the track of like economics is all bullshit. I think that was the first thing for me. So we got these two different types of prices that actually exist in the world, as far as we can tell from this 1932 study, which is like market prices and administered prices. But the thing that sticks out to me about this is like ultimately market prices are still administered by the organization who are setting the prices, but they're administering the prices according to the principle of the market. Like they're looking at the market for guidance on where they should administer the price. Because all of these businesses operate as basically, you know, private dictatorships. There's no impetus to automatically set your prices according to the market. It's something that needs to be chosen and set by the business owner. And that sort of like little distinction, I think, carries a lot of problems for the way that people think about economics. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. And that's something I always think about whenever people are saying, oh, the businesses are just following the market. There's always someone who inevitably makes a decision. Like businesses don't just act of their own accord. They are organizations of human beings choosing to do things. And yes, there's pressure for them to behave a certain way. But, you know, inherently, they still are just people making decisions. And I've read like other survey studies on how prices work. And even the market prices where companies say they base the price on the prevailing market price they still only change their prices a few times a year, like between two and like 10. So it's not like it's constantly in this fluctuation tending towards a perfect Pareto optimal equilibrium. It's just like people follow the market sort of. And then also, of course, most markets are dominated by two or three companies and they are the ones who decide where the market goes above everyone else. So the smaller your business is, the more likely you are to follow the market. And the bigger the business is, the more likely you are to just say, this is the price. No, that just clicked for me. The big companies, they can administer prices that change the market for everyone else. So it it could even be that the 25 to 50%, depending on the industry, you know, that are following the market are actually following the shockwaves of the administrative decisions of larger firms. Mm -hmm. So it would seem to me that the only way to have a free market economy that's committed to free markets would be to run some sort of enormous simulation on really advanced computers to figure out what the real-time prices of everything was and then threaten all the business owners at gunpoint to say (laughs) they can't sell their things unless they change their product prices on some sort of regular basis, whether that's every hour, every day, every week, whatever. We can leave that to the small group of businessmen who run the world. Yeah, there was that documentary on Walmart in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And one of the things that I always remember about it was they were talking about how like when Walmart became dominant, they would basically like tell companies that make products like what they were going to pay for something. The manufacturer would be like, oh, this is the MSRP. And Walmart would be like, that's cute. We're going to pay this much, actually. So they basically set the prices for like all of retail. (laughs) 
Wow, this makes perfect sense and fits in exactly with this thing that I've just been thinking about a lot recently, which is how people misinterpret the economy to be this thing that's out there that we're inside. And they think that all of these models and graphs represent this thing on the outside world. But all the models and graphs are based on the assumption that you can't talk about power and how power operates, even if it's obvious how power is operating if you look at the basic evidence. Because I want to give an olive branch and be like, okay, there's people who are studying economics, who are doing good work with it. And there are economic papers that come to conclusions that I like that I think are sound according to the principles of economics. But for real, like this whole thing just seems like the board is so tilted at every step of the way because of this sort of natural tendency among the people in power at companies to take advantage of opportunities to gain advantage they have because of their power. Like that social phenomenon of people taking advantage of the power they have to maximize the benefit to them, that's still true. That's sort of a part of economics in a way. But unless you have power in the mix, it's totally useless. Like you're talking about decisions that are similar in form, but are qualitatively worlds apart in content because of their impacts. Yeah, what I'm getting from this conversation is that the study of economics and this idea of the economy as something that's out there doing things, it's active in the world, and like all these assumptions that the economic model starts with, and then also all of the ways that the definitions of things or the goals, like efficiency towards what, and like all those little details get twisted in one particular direction of rationalizing in favor of the power of the people who own the capital. I was going to say, if you want to get really big brained about it, the economy is really just a state fiction that was created as a, an elaborate rationing system and system of force projection. You know, instead of using direct violence on people all the time, they would impose debts on people, take people's land and food and hoard it and say, you have to pay us money to get it. And also, we're the only people with money. And if you want money, you have to work for us. And if you don't follow those rules, then these guys with spears are going to murder you. That's what the economy is, essentially. <laughs> this big brain theory of the economy. I feel like I want to hear it explained again, except slower. Okay. So if you want the really long version, read Debt by David Graeber and Against the Grain by James Scott. This is like basically a composite of those books. Early states operated essentially by using direct force. So if you didn't do what they say, they would you know, attack you. Uh, eventually they figured out they don't have to use force all the time. All they have to do is say that you owe them something. And Graeber points out that if you say that someone is a debtor who owes something, then any sort of unthinkable violence or deprivation that you subject the debtor to suddenly becomes physical violence even. It becomes justified because there's some sort of moral failing. They're a debtor. It's a very fascinating social construct, and it makes sense that it would arise in this context. Yep. Taxes work basically the same way. You know, you owe taxes for being alive, being born in a place, or in the case of early states, they would just like force you to move to wherever they want you to move, and then you would still owe taxes or debt or labor. Early on, all of the prices and stuff were in easily countable units, but not necessarily money. Usually it was grain in the case of early states, so you would owe like X bushels of millet or whatever. And then later on, they started using money as like an abstract unit of account that eventually evolved into what we have now, which is a extremely rationalized, complex system of accounting for debts and money and taxes and labor and all that stuff. 
So on the biggest brain level, if we want to take a radical anarchist critique to the economy, the outline of it is that the economy is a social fiction by the people in power designed to extract labor from people who owe them nothing. Yep. Abolish the economy. <laughs> we now go to a sincere economics grad student who joined the field in order to make a difference in the world, to make the world a better place. Oh, I just, I wanted to study markets and prices. They were always saying we couldn't do nice things because of economics, and I just wanted to understand it better, the science and art of distribution within the realm of humans and production, and I'm just, I'm being bullied all the time by these leftists that just insulting me when I'm just, I'm, I'm just really trying to understand it, wrap my head around it, and then use it for good. You know, hey, like, economics nerd, <sighs> how come minimum wage laws don't actually decrease employment? Where's your supply and demand graphs now? Well, I mean, you actually believe in supply uh, and uh, demand? Uh, of course, I mean, it only follows that if you have, say, a shortage of flashlights, and then you're able to raise the price Why for it, a rational... Why would there be a shortage of flashlights? Lights. The factory would just increase production. Well, what if, dummy? I mean, there could be a run on materials. If a lot of people need flashlights at once, for example, and you have a supply and demand response. Can you cite so, an example of that happening, or is it just in your cute little model? <laughs> Surely, I mean, we can find examples of there being a shortage of flashlights. I mean, that's not oh absurd. My God. Even if there was a shortage, like if it's a disaster scenario, why do we want to raise the prices on something important like there, flashlights? I mean, there's, so I mean, poor people can't get them? What's wrong like, with well, you? Okay, maybe it doesn't perfectly apply in all circumstances, but it certainly generally applies. Aaron, this guy doesn't even use empirical evidence. Oh Do you believe God. that? <laughs> Self-consistent internal models are a type of empiricism. <laughs> oh, I can't According believe to who? Guys, guys, I'm on your side. The reason I got into economics is because I wanted to try to make things better. You don't need to insult my discipline just because of some errant political misuses of it over the last 80 plus years. I think it could also have a liberatory side, okay? You don't need this bullying. This I'm guy to thinks learn. that there's things that are apolitical. <laughs> Get a load of this guy. I mean, all science is apolitical, so <laughs> I don't see why economics would be any different. You I actually <laughs> think this is a science. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it's falsifiable, isn't it's it? It's falsified, I would say. Absolutely. You know what, guys? I got offered a scholarship to a Koch Brothers College I wasn't going to take because I'm a leftist, but all of this bullying is making me sort of second-guess. Wow. Oh, you're a leftist? Okay, tell me this, buddy. What does it say on page 193 of Critique of the Gotha Program? I, uh, I don't have that on hand. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, uh, what does it God. say on page 193 of Critique of the Gotha Program? Which translation? I bet he doesn't even know about the multiple translations of the Gotha Program. <laughs> Do you think critique? we all learned German to read this book? And does he think we all rely on just one translation? You gotta look at things from different angles, bro. Open your That's mind. That's your problem. Of course he's considering going to the Koch Brothers School. I mean, he belongs there. I hope he becomes a fascist. That would be so typical. I'm calling it now. He's going. I think I might go to economic school to learn to poop on command instead of working with you guys. Because I'm feeling pretty backed up against the wall by all this. There goes the mask. There it is. Mask we see his true face. Knew it was coming. There it is. Oh my god! He's a fascist. Look at this guy. Oh, fascist, complete fucking guys, fascist. Fucking fascist. Get him out. in the seat. Shut Get it. in the I'm seat. Left. Shut up, fascist. I want to steel man economics a little bit okay. after that, <laughs> and talk a little bit about how. People who believe in economics to various degrees, what they think they're participating in and what it would look like to better allow them to participate in that process. 
economists think of themselves as participating in a scientific study of the way that money flows in economies. Knowing what we've just went over now, it seems like a little bit of a silly idea that that's what's being described. Especially the thing that really catches me is this use of the economy as a noun, when it's obvious that economics can better be understood as a verb. It's a relationship in transactions between people who are making choices. The economy isn't something that gets angry or has feelings or responds to things. It's always people who are responding to things. In this use of economy as a noun, I think is one of the ideological constructs at the heart of the current discipline of economics that degrades it into something which is not scientific. Yeah, it gets to that point that libertarians go to where they say that capitalism is just when you trade. And so capitalism has always existed. Yeah, because monkeys would sometimes presumably trade bananas with one another in a free and deliberate trade. Right. And in the Soviet Union, they banned trading bananas. It's true. Damn socialists. For people who were into the Bernie stuff and who think about ways that state power can be used through the democratic mechanisms, the pseudo-democratic mechanisms that exist, there's this thing that faces left-wing governments all the time, which is this booming god of the economy and business confidence. And how is the economy going to respond if you do something like introduce a welfare reform that gives a lot of people a basic income who need it? It's always this political argument based on turning into not just a noun, but a proper noun, a mm. <laughs> capital E, the economy, you know, it's like this thing with feelings that's going to retaliate if you do things that go against its rules. And the thing it hates the most, the thing it hates the most is taking wealth from rich people or giving anything to poor people. Like we'd want to do it. We'd love to do it. Obviously, it hurts us too to see people suffering, but... The economy just gets so pissed whenever you try to do something like that. So, sorry. Yeah, the other part of the big-brained anarchist version of the economy is also money is an infinite resource. It's just created by the state. And so you don't even have to take money from rich people. You can just give it to poor people because you can create it out of thin air. So we could just give every poor person a trillion dollars. Like, yeah, just buy whatever you want. And Bill Gates doesn't get a trillion dollars. If we gave every person in the world $180 billion or $181 billion, we could make Jeff Bezos the poorest man on earth in one fell swoop. He'd catch up in 10 minutes. Yeah. I mean, we could just make the amount of money that we give everyone so utterly ridiculous that his $180 billion is like just a rounding error. <laughs> like everyone gets 5,000 quintillion dollars. The new penny <laughs> is 100 billion. We just got this radical type of inflation where we're dealing in like huge, huge amounts of zeros at the end of our money, technically speaking, that we don't acknowledge. It would just be like yen or pesos. Because I don't know if people know this, but there used to be a unit called a sen, which is like a cent in Japan. But the prices of everything at one point inflated so much that 100 yen is $1, essentially. Dang, did the government spend too much and cause the economy to inflate? Yeah, they decided to help poor people. And so that's bad to do. And so the economy got really sad and uh, made everything cost more. <laughs> so, okay, so let's do the scientific turn on this. Because there's something real being talked about when we talk about the economy getting mad. Who is really the economy who's getting mad here? It's the firms that have the power to set prices to influence the shape of the markets and who are used to having that power be undisturbed by government. The business community, the heads of the largest corporations. When we talk about the economy getting mad, we're talking about boardrooms full of rich, amoral people getting mad and doing things that are bad for society to punish governments that are trying to do things that are good for society. That's the scientific turn here, because we're going from talking about something in the abstract, the noun economy, to talking about specific people who are actually making the decisions within the actual organizations 
that lead to things like prices skyrocketing and governments being punished in power. If you want to have an economic narrative that's based on reality, you have to start from the assumption that people make decisions, not the economy, and that the economy is made up of people. So until economics as a discipline does that foundationally, it's really unscientific. Yeah, the thing I always say about it is like economics is one of the only sciences where you can you can figure out how something works by just going up and asking someone and economists almost never do that. Like if you try to look up survey studies of the economy or economics, it's almost impossible to find. There's so few of them. Almost all of them are model studies because models are something you can do in your graduate department computer lab and you just like do some math. You get to use some of that advanced math that you learned and develop something that sounds good. And if it sounds good and sort of kind of fits the broad trends of how everything works, then you can say that it's completely true. Oh, and in a lot of economic studies, just a little aside, even if they prove themselves wrong using the model version, like if they test their model and find that it doesn't fit reality, they'll be like, well, the model was wrong, but there are still reasons to believe that it's good. Not kidding <laughs> at all. <laughs> and uh, reasons to believe it's good is a concept that would be great to apply like in the realm of providing people for basic provisions of need. Like we never give that benefit of the doubt to Cuba. We're yep. like, well, it's not quite working according to the standards of America. But I think, you know, there's there's reasons to think it still has value in some way. How does the only place that this is applied by power apply to the bizarre esoteric graphs that they make to justify their own power? Well, I answered my own question. Well, the graphs use math. Oh, of course. Yeah. You can't trust this survey like <laughs> by asking people whether or not they have what they need and so on. That's not really an economic concern. It's, the person who's in charge of the business business could be wrong, but numbers don't lie. The so. numbers that are based on that person being a rational consumer in the marketplace. <laughs> yeah, the person could be wrong, but not in our model. They can be wrong <laughs> about whether the model is true, but they're always right about their own util maximizing. <laughs> exactly. So the anarchist critique of economics, a part of it is that economics doesn't model the fact that power exists power corrupts, power affects people's behavior, and a number of other things that are pretty obvious common sense about the way that power affects the way people behave. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of funny in a way because the thing that economists leave out about power in the economy is the exact same thing that is the eroding force on their own discipline, where the misuse of power during the development of the ideas that are like mainstream economics historically what we're dealing with economics isn't just like a study of the economy. It's administered economics by people in power. Like there's this incredible parallel between their lies about the way the economy works and their lies about how the discipline itself is founded. And there's an example of this, and I actually haven't read the book, but there's a really detailed book by an economist named Mason Gaffney that's about how Henry George, and I'm actually not even particularly like a Henry George guy, for people who aren't aware, he was a big thinker in what was called like the single tax movement about 100 years ago. And the idea was that by taxing land values, you can make all the graphs do all these wonderful things. But obviously, the rich and powerful don't like the idea of taxing land values because land is one of the major ways that they store and increase their wealth. So what's proposed by Mason Gaffney is that at the start of what we consider the development of the discipline of economics in universities, there were wealthy and powerful business interests, large landholders who were making big donations to set up universities under certain conditions. And so we have the start of the discipline of economics, the place where people learned what economics was, where economists got their training were themselves funded by the people who specifically didn't want certain taxes, and they wanted the theory to match what they didn't want to happen. 
this is a process that didn't just happen then. It's something that happens over and over again and recreates itself because of the systems of power and influence that still exist to this day. So I think it's a big asterisk that we want to put anytime when we're talking about economics is to try to keep this in mind, that it's not just a neutral study like physics. It's a study about the relationships between human beings. And as a result, very, very powerful people have had very good reason and very successfully distorted the way that we think about these things over the last hundred years. Yeah, it's so weird. Everyone thinks that Adam Smith is like the father of economics, but that's almost completely bullshit. He was not very influential in his day. The earliest book that was published on political economy, you know, what it was called before it was economics, was by Sir James Stewart. And there's like huge sections in the book that are all about how states can control birth rates and stuff like that. So it's like very centered around the management of power from a state perspective. The person who invented utilitarianism, Jeremy Bentham, I I like to tell this one all the time. He coined the term panopticon for an idea that he had for a very efficient prison system. You know, there would be a central tower where the guards would stand and you wouldn't be able to see them, but they could see all of the prisoners who were in a ring around them. The doors of their cells faced the tower so that the prisoners would think they're always being monitored. And the thing that he wanted to do with this was to put poor people in there so that their birth rate could be controlled. The amount of food and water they get could be controlled. He lamented the fact that it was illegal to have anyone under the age of 14 work. So prisoners' children would be able to start working at the age of four, which would be much more efficient. So you're describing a major thinker in the history of economics, again, just to be clear? Major thinker in liberalism in general. A lot of people who know a lot about liberalism know about Jeremy Bentham. I don't know if he had created utilitarianism or popularized it, but yeah, he was big in that area. Fortunately, he never got his panopticon created, but not for want of trying. And also, like this is what I was going to say before I started thinking about what that means for the world. People like Adam Smith, who are always cited by economists, also come to like completely inverse conclusions to a lot of what people who use economics as a bludgeon in the political realm in the current day do. Like the actual like you know this is something Noam Chomsky points out all the time. He's like, oh, if you read. Adam Smith for five minutes, you'll see that uh, we should vote for Biden. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's that famous Adam Smith quote about landlords. I don't remember the exact thing, but he's like, they suck, basically. They suck and vote for Biden. (laughs) And another thing that Adam Smith says is that you shouldn't have one person just do one job repeatedly over and over again because it's bad for their mental health. Uh, You know, this paraphrase slightly. I think he says they go mad, something like that. (laughs) Oh, I think he says they become stupid. Like nothing (laughs) makes anyone dumber than like having someone do a repetitive task their entire life. Right. And he thought that it was good to try to generally make people smart and enrich them. Typical liberal. This episode of the Seriously Neighbors podcast is proudly brought to you by Economic Bads. They're like economic goods, except they're the opposite. So, like, it's a pretty funny joke. Do you like things that are bad? Do you enjoy being miserable or being unhealthy? You should try out Economic Bads. We all know what an economic good is. A good is something that you want. It's something that's desirable. Economic Bads, it's more stuff like garbage or toxic wastes. These are the things that have been left behind by this economic system. Things that just never get a break, never get sold, never get bought and sold on the market. It's time to embrace the bad. 
Economic bads are forecasted to be one of the largest growing sectors of the economy, and it's good to invest now. Invest in bads for a good long-term outcome. That's what we say in the bads investment industry. The more bads you invest in, the more goods you can buy later. One of my favorite economic bads from history, it's kind of a tragic story, really, because it just goes to show the prejudice against economic bads. Cigarettes. People used to love buying cigarettes. They make people who smoke them feel good. You feel relaxed. You look cool. There's so much about cigarettes to love. But, you know, there's this one thing about them. They kill people. They give you lung cancer, emphysema, shortened lifespans. Fine. Okay, they're an economic bad. But does that mean we have to stop buying them? Stop selling them? No. Economic bads are a real concept from economics. They literally do say that to refer to garbage and stuff. Zero percent a joke. And now, back to our show. The last thing that I wanted to touch on here, I was arguing with an economics person in a comment section recently, and they were saying, economists talk about market failure all the time. You know, economists get it. You're not blowing anyone's minds by pointing out that markets don't give people what they need. It's part of the discipline of economics to acknowledge market failure. And I'm interested to hear your response to that. But I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, if we presume that there is such a thing that's a market that's either failing or succeeding, we might miss opportunities to talk about the non-commodified space where needs have been typically met throughout the history of humanity. And market failure framing implies the necessity of a market that either fails or succeeds. I hope that distinction would blow the minds of someone who is interested in economics, because I feel like the distinction is really important. How do you deal with market failure? I mean, with what you're saying, they would usually just say that you can't not have markets. It's impossible. Humans just naturally have markets. And so like the only thing we can do is to make them work as good as possible. But my take, of course, is markets are created as rationing systems. So when a market is so-called failing, it's actually just operating like normal. If we have a bunch of houseless people, that's a market just operating as it should be because the whole point is to ration housing. So if rich people take up all the housing because they have all the money and they want to use it as an investment, the market is working perfectly fine. It's just that the market doesn't work for houseless people or poor people. That's not its purpose. So it's not a market failure. It's just a market, I guess. <laughs> let's, let's be fair. Isn't there any chance that this thing we call markets in the economy was founded in the way of being an indirect way of dispossessing people and turning them into workers for the benefit of some sort of like regional <laughs> warlord? Isn't there any chance it could start that way and then through that process discover a benevolent mutualistic process towards ever greater mutual flourishing through the act of barter? abstracted a little bit. One way to put it is like you're kind of saying that market failure is the natural state of the market. That's how they are. They exist in a state of failing humanity. And Sean is saying, is there such a thing as market success? Are there markets that could not fail humanity? Like, could they get us to the good society that we want to go to if we just turn the knobs in the right direction, switch out a few formulas, something like that? We could take the like best case scenario, you know, for the vast majority of prices, like everything becomes more expensive all the time. But there's one thing that has become cheaper in the past bunch of decades, which is electronics. TVs and computers are much more affordable now than they were in the 70s. But underneath that is, of course, a brutal system of slave labor for mining the metals, turning them into usable materials building the circuits, putting the circuits together and packaging them up. 
before they finally make it to our shores where the computers are cheap and affordable to us. So, I mean, I just like can't think of a market where things are good, especially because like since we all make things and we get paid for doing the work to make things, the amount that we're paid goes into the final price of the product. So the more someone is paid, the more expensive it is for other people. And so like there's an inherently antagonistic relationship between how affordable something is to everyone else and how much the people that are making it are being paid. Like bananas are very cheap and plentiful for us, but the reason for that is because they are grown and picked by plantation slaves, basically. It's an interesting way to frame the benefits of these decreasing costs of goods that market literalists will sort of argue is the benefit of markets. As you can see, yeah, the cost of electronics and stuff is going down. But then what you're saying is there's a real cost to everything. And the real cost of these things is being transmutated from the form of money being paid by consumers into wounding and degrading human beings. And like the cost of these products is marked in scars on the flesh of innocent people. Is that what you're sort of saying about low prices under capitalism? Yeah. And land and non-human animals, all that stuff. Even if we got rid of like all of the labor involved in doing something, you know, there's still a cost to the land, the ecosystem and non-human animals. My friend Young Neocon on Twitter talks all the time about how not only do I think it's 500 million don't quote me on that. People die every year because of the state and the economy, but also something like several hundred billion terrestrial animals and a trillion marine animals every single year. It's just like a, one giant sacrifice zone on the planet for products. I know it's not very lighthearted, but uh, that's like the very depressing truth of the economy, I guess. Yeah, the globe is the altar and all the living things on it are the sacrificial animals, humans, plants, potentially. Yep. I'm going to give some voice to the market anarchists, not because I am one, but because I feel like there's an argument without disregarding anything that you've said today, and even taking everything you've said apart from the parts that directly contradict it is true, which is that if the origin of markets were basically state rationing systems, isn't there a potentiality for something that could be in some ways like a market, but presumably I think over time would probably distort to be unlike markets that we've known, but nonetheless have some market-like features of a communally participatory rationing system based on the world as it is? Can you give a little olive branch to the market anarchists of under what conditions, <laughs> under what conditions could, could you find something to agree with them on that? I mean, there's nothing wrong with like trading with people. That's fine. I think the difference is like, I define the market very specifically as like this state construct with property and money and prices and trade for a profit and all that stuff. I think they define the market as more just like trade between people. So that's fine. But if they are defining markets as closer to, you know, what markets are in our current world, I guess my question is, why do we need that? I think they need to be justified more than they need to be like defended reflexively. I just don't see any reason for them. Because as we know, they ration things, but they ration things so that rich people can have a lot of stuff and poor people don't have a lot of stuff. They don't ration things so that, you know, we stop destroying the ecosystem because that's what we're doing right now, like at a faster rate than ever before in history when we have like the most rationalized advanced markets in history. So yeah, I, I just I don't know why we need markets. I think it's one of those things where it's either you're defining it as trade or you're just sort of reflexively defending 
a thing and don't have a real good justification for it. So my olive branches, uh, trade is fine. <laughs> uh, and do you think there could be potentials where trade and money and complex systems could exist without property and some of the other things that you hold as firm within your idea of the economy? Like, where's the line draw? I'm just so curious because this is something that I've thought about in different ways over time. And I've, I'm of multiple minds on this issue, I guess. So I'm curious, like, where do you draw the line where the things that they call a market's no longer a market to you? I mean, I guess I sort of use a circular definition because if something existed outside of the state, I probably wouldn't call it a market. It's one of those things where like, we have no idea what an anarchist society would look like, really. So how do we know that we need or don't need markets? But I also have, like, I've tried to read some market anarchist essays. I just never find the case for markets to be very convincing. I've tried to press a couple of people on, like, why do we need markets? And I either don't get a response or the response is, uh, yeah, I guess we don't need markets, but we should have them anyway. And there's been a couple of people that have actually convinced, like, we should not have markets. <laughs> Some of the few internet arguments that I've actually won and convinced the other person that they were wrong and I was right were about market anarchism. <laughs> I think if you use the definition of markets that you're talking about, yeah, it's pretty hard to make the argument that you need to keep all that stuff. It's one of those like, just make the case for it and send it to me. You know, I'll take it seriously. I'm not going to like reject it out of hand. I'll read what you have to say unless it's something I've already seen before. And then I will reject it out of hand. <laughs> Are you familiar with Pericon? I don't know that much about it, but would you consider that also not a market thing? Yeah, no, I've heard of it. When you have like um, workplace democracy and participatory budgeting and stuff. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where like they're not putting it in the right context of like we have workplaces specifically because of the state creating them. Like I've become more and more anti-civ, not to get into this whole conversation, but I think most of what people think that we need is there because of the rest of the system. So like we have these workplaces where we are forced to make things and we have no control in them. And so like our instinct is, well, we should democratize the things that we have and then it'll work better. But like if we take it from a systemic perspective, we have this big society wide structure based around creating an upper and lower class and putting the upper class in charge of everyone else. That's the reason that we have a thing called a workplace to begin with. And the only way that we can really democratize the workplace is by getting rid of the power structure that creates workplaces in the first place. So if we're doing that, why don't we just get rid of the whole thing and not have workplaces anymore? What does a non-workplace society look like? Like to someone who's like, but workplaces are how we produce good like how are we still gonna live lives worth living if there aren't places where people go to to do productive things together right i mean prior to the existence of what we now call workplaces people made and gathered things where they live there was no separation between where you live and where you work like people work together as a community unit to provide for everyone else in the community unit and that included hunting fishing growing things whether it was agriculture or horticulture and you know making clothes houses all that stuff there was no like separate workplace where you went to go and make clothes or whatever it was just something you did wherever you happen to be there wasn't like a distinct separation between like work time and leisure time most of your time was leisure time the only like work time was getting food, which also often there was kind of a blurred distinction between work and leisure because getting food doesn't always mean 
working the entire time unless you're doing like permanent agriculture, which is also a thing that the state imposed on people. So it, it would look like a village, like a small, basically a barbarian village is like the model that I'm kind of thinking of. I, I've been reading a lot about the Ainu lately, and I'm thinking of an Ainu village when I'm talking about all this stuff. We're almost out of time here, so we can't get into all this interesting stuff, but we should definitely talk about it again in the future because there's so much that I share and agree when it comes to preconditions of this conversation, because there's a few things there that I agree with by certain definitions, and then I have all these caveats, and like my mind is working overtime Mm -hmm. of all like my enormous essay I wrote in response to what you're just saying, but we're out of time. This has happened before on the podcast where like I felt like it was right at the end, and I'm like, oh, but... Oh my God, I could go two hours on this. Easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should actually plan the conversation because I've read like the basic concepts of Paracon, but I haven't read like a Paracon book. So I could be getting a lot of details wrong and just not know it. So I don't want to be completely uncharitable to them because I know that Paracon people are like good people who actually do want the best things for everyone. So I don't want to just like shit on them without knowing anything about it. But yeah, if you guys want to talk about that in the future, we that would definitely be a thing I would be interested in. Yeah, I only brought them up specifically because they popped to mind. But I was just thinking, like, I think in general, mm-hmm. most people still imagine something like workplaces in the future, or maybe not even a workplace, but like work time or like, yeah, I don't know. It- Let's, I, I've got time to talk about this a little bit because there's so much I want to say that's so interesting here about this. Because, yeah, I think part of it is like there's differing ideas of utopia, which is like the ideal outcome is one part of this conversation. And it's like one of the sub questions of politics. And I think what pericon people tend to be focused on generally is the more immediate practical praxis, right? Like the, mm-hmm. how do we get from here to there? Yeah. And so the things that I really love to pick apart with you in the future relates to how these understandings fit into ideas of utopia and also fit into ideas of transition, like the wormhole of civ or no civ, fascinating discussion. And like you said about para econ people, like I think all the people having this discussion are good people who want the right things to happen. Um, and maybe people take different frames around it, but like the more that we can work to build sort of common understanding, and a lot of these discussions get hung up on definitions too. I think it's a 100% possibility that when you say the word civilization, you're thinking of a specific definition that only a monster would defend. <laughs> and when people get their backs up and hear, oh, I'm anti-civ, they're thinking of a definition of civilization that probably would not be criticized except for maybe some of the implications under the surface. But like in terms of a vision of an ideal, you know what I mean? Like we need to build a common space on some of these things. And these linguistic disputes, I think, are really actually impeding our ability to come to a shared vision of the trajectory towards a much better society that, that you know, doesn't have the line that meets the other line that means some people have to die. Yeah, we should all just communicate with uh, mathematical models based on utils, I think all of those disputes would go away. Total obliteration of politics. It's just pure, pure administration. <laughs> well, this was really fun. This is a great chat. Yeah, I had a great time. Well, definitely check out Neighbor Science podcast hosted by Ryan here covering both political economy, like the things we talked about today, and anime, which we didn't get as much into because I, I've got some sort of allergy to it, honestly. A lot of people do. That's fine. I'm not like the type <laughs> that I'm like, oh, you like anime. That's bad to each their own. And yeah. I've watched like one of those really good anime movies by that one director. It was great. Miyazaki. Exactly. Yeah. I just don't generally watch it. I watched <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh. I did watch Yu-Gi-Oh when I was younger. I have friends that will defend that show to the death. <laughs> Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Wrong Boys Get Anime Recommendations from Ryan from Neighbor Science Sketch. I am 
one of your hosts, The Wrong Boys. And uh, we've got here with us today, Ryan from Neighbor Science. Hey, welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks a lot. So this in this rapid fire anime recommendation sketch, I've got three questions for you. If someone's new to anime and they haven't watched any anime, what's a good anime to start with? I would say there's one called Durarara, which is D-U-R-A-R-A-R-A. It's one that I watched all the time in one of the old houses I lived in, and my roommates were always asking about what it was and wanted me to play it all the time. That one's great. Also, Hands Off Izoken is really great because it's an anime about making anime, so it like shows you the characters nerding out about the process of making anime. And it kind of gives you an appreciation for what goes into it. If someone's like a real anime fan who watches a lot of anime, is there any sort of like new or niche recommendation you give to someone who probably hasn't heard of it before? My current favorites are Doro Hedoro, which is great if you like ultra violence and gritty settings and food porn. Golden Kamui is coming out right now. It's great. It's about indigenous people of Japan and takes place after the Russo-Japanese War, which is like a period of history that most people don't know about. And uh, I think probably the rarest one that I can recommend really strongly is called Showa Genroku Rakugo Shinju, which is about this art form called Rakugo, which is like a type of comedy. It's sort of like stand-up comedy, and it's like a genuinely very funny show. I would highly recommend that one, too. And finally, when it comes to the overall scale of the enormous variety contained within, what's the best of all time? Where's the peak of this medium and field? Evangelion has a very high reputation and it completely lives up to it. And for me, I think Mushishi is probably the greatest anime to me. Mushishi, what is that? What are we in for if we check it out? So it's about this guy who travels around all the time to different villages and he finds problems that are caused by spirits and sort of exercises the spirits. But it's like less of a like violent thing where he just kills the spirit and more of like a nice ecological thing where he acknowledges that they are living beings that also deserve to live as much as the people that he's treating. And it's very episodic, so you can just like watch any episode you want and you pretty much know what's going on. Thank you very much, and thank you to everyone for listening to this week's episode of The Wrong Boys Ask Ryan from Neighbor Science Recommendations for Anime in Three Distinct Contexts Sketch. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> but yeah, if you're interested to hear more elaborations on what Ryan was saying, as I am, check out the feed because... You've covered this sort of stuff from a lot of angles. And uh, if you haven't listened to Seriously Wrong, what in the hell are you doing? They are like literally the reason that I started a podcast. Their episode on consumerism like pulled me out of a deep depression years ago. And uh, it's one of the best podcasts there is. So go listen to it. Whoa, that true story? Yes. <laughs> what can you articulate what that was? Like, how does that? I don't even I have rem zero memory of that episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was the one where you guys did a like a it was like a Vox Populi style episode where you went into a mall and we're talking to people about consumerism. Oh, yeah. And uh, you kept getting kicked out of places. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we got to do that again. When we did that, we thought it would be something that we would start doing. <laughs> That's great. You should do that on your show, too. T tell people it about cool. the grain and shit and see how they see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and before we go, I'll just mention both Seriously Wrong and Neighbor Science are on Patreon. So if you want to check those out or support either one of our shows, you can head over to Patreon and do that. We talked a little bit about David Graeber's debt in this episode, and we are actually running a book club for David Graeber's debt right now on our Discord server, which you can get onto by donating to our Patreon or just shooting us a message because we don't 
want to exclude anyone from the book club. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I, I always do that too. Some people have made fun of me and say that it sounds like I'm hanging up the phone. <laughs> okay, bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. everybody. We love you. Next time on Seriously Neighbors, the Civ and Anti-Civ people finally agree on a shared definition of what they're talking about. Okay, so you're saying that civilization is just anytime something happens that you distrust or don't like. Yes. And anytime something good happens that's not Civ. Pretty okay. much. I don't think that's... I, I'm not with that. I don't agree with that at all. Anytime something good happens is when it's civilized, and anytime something bad happens is when it's not civilized. So any like of the bad things in previous civilization, those were the not civilized parts. That's how I see it. You know, civilization could contain a variety of things. It's just a descriptor of any complex organized society. It's sort of a neutral term. I mean, it can be bad or it can be good. And it's mostly been bad in a lot of ways, you could argue. But I don't know. I'm somewhere. I don't think that's. No, it's definitely not neutral. It either means all good or all bad. Civilization is when you want me to agree on your definitions. Yeah, civilization is when we all agree on definitions. Exactly. No, civilization is neither when we agree on definitions nor when we don't. It's the possibility of both in a complex organized context.